This is The Guardian. Today, why Scotland's gender reform bill has been blocked by the Conservative government. A culture war. A near constitutional crisis. And at the heart of it, a marginalised and vulnerable community that is out on the streets, once again, protesting for its rights. Uh, my name is Dylan Hamilton and I'm a transman from West Lothian. The Guardian Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks met Dylan last week at a 300-person strong rally in Edinburgh. It's really good to see everyone here. I think the atmosphere is almost a bit different to previous ones. People are really angry and I think the difference is that we did win in the Scottish Parliament and now people in the power in Westminster feel threatened by it. Rishi Sunak's government has used an unprecedented power to veto the Scottish Parliament from passing reforms on gender identity. They say the bill, which improves the way trans people are legally recognised, threatens the UK's equality law. Gender-critical campaigners claim it threatens women's safety. But not everyone is buying this. What we're hearing is the language of a moral panic. We're hearing pretty much the exact same phrases they used in the 80s for gay people. Um, and I would encourage them to kind of take a step back and just have a look at it. I think objectivity is key here. So I would encourage them to step back from a culture war and maybe stop using 0.5% of the population as a political football. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's first minister, called the Conservative government's intervention a full frontal assault. And the row is throwing petrol on Scotland's fierce fight over independence. We're just ignored. This isn't just about the government. This has to be about trans rights as well, because it's been overlooked. And more people are now interested because it's affected the government. But surely as human beings, we should all be here because there's a section of humans that aren't getting seen whose rights are being taken away. So what will this mean constitutionally, politically, and for the public conversation on trans rights? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, how Scotland's gender reform bill became a constitutional crisis and a culture war battleground. Libby, last week the Conservative government confirmed its plans to block Scottish reforms on the Gender Recognition Act, which has triggered a potential crisis for the union. There's been significant debate, but let's start at the legislation at the centre of the row. What is Scotland's Gender Recognition Reform Bill? The Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill streamlines the way that an individual can apply to change their legal gender. It does that by removing the need for a psychiatric diagnosis of gender dysphoria in order to obtain a gender recognition certificate, which is known as a, a GRC. The World Health Organization will no longer classify gender identity disorder as a mental disorder. The health agency is reclassifying the diagnosis as gender incongruence. It will instead be this, this psychiatric report, I think, is sort of particularly problematic for, for trans people who, who feel that it perpetuates this notion that being trans is actually a mental illness. It also extends the application process to 16 and 17-year-olds for the first time. 
it reduces the amount of time that somebody has to be permanently living in their acquired gender before they can apply from two years to three months. And it also introduces a three-month reflection period during which an individual can change their mind afterwards. The Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill is passed. And yes, this would have made Scotland the first part of the UK to introduce self-identification. And indeed, the Welsh First Minister, Mark Drakeford, has said that he is asking Westminster for the powers to introduce similar changes in Wales. So the bill passed with a decisive majority in Holyrood last December. But almost immediately, there was talk of a Westminster intervention. And last week, the UK government dropped that bombshell by using a never-before-used piece of legislation to stop the bill. Can you talk us through what happened? There had already been a fair bit of sabre-rattling from the Westminster government even before this bill was passed, threatening not to recognise Scottish GRCs, for example. And I'm remembering now, you know, it was Thursday, December the 22nd. Finally, it gets passed just after after lunchtime. And then mid-afternoon, I'm just getting my copy ready for first edition and there it is in my inbox. Statement from Alistair Jack, the UK government Scottish Secretary, saying that they are going to consider the ramifications of this bill on UK legislation, considering sort of ways of dealing with it up to and including a Section 35 order, which would stop the bill going for royal assent. Now, as you say, there's a reason why many UK government sources describe that as a nuclear option. It's a, a section in, in the Scotland Act which set up the Scottish Parliament, but it has never been used before in the history of devolution. Talking of those powers, we have had devolution, which is the sharing of power around the UK for almost 25 years. But Libby, who gets to decide what? How is decision-making over Scotland's split between Westminster and Holyrood? And what's gone wrong this time? I mean, one of the key tenets of of devolution is that everything is devolved unless it is explicitly reserved. And we saw this most recently at the Supreme Court last October in their ruling where they decided that the Scottish Parliament didn't have the powers to hold a second independence referendum without Westminster's consent. On that Supreme Court ruling, uh, judges in London deciding to reject the Scottish government's argument that it can hold a second independence referendum without consent from the Westminster government. Lord Reid uh, said he and his fellow judges unanimously agree that power on this issue lies with the UK government. That's because matters relating to the UK union are reserved to Westminster. And there have been, again, instances recently where UK government lawyers have referred Holyrood laws to the courts, arguing that they relate to reserved matters and and therefore they're overstepping Holyrood's competency. But using this particular power, this Section 35 order, this is new territory. You know, no matter how much the Scotland office downplay it, there's a good reason why other sources describe it as the nuclear option. And so why do you think that nuclear option has been deployed here for the gender recognition reform bill? Alistair Jack, in his statement of reasons, which he put before the Commons last week, uh, raises sort of a, a series of concerns about how 
Scotland's new gender recognition system would impact on UK-wide equality law. Having said that, we know that transgender rights are at the very heart of uh, national and indeed international culture war at the moment. And we know that there are individuals within the UK government who see it as a very useful wedge issue to win back support in uh, certain constituencies in England and also to embarrass both the Labour Party and the SNP. Scottish Labour MSPs in the Scottish Parliament backed that system in the last couple of weeks. They supported it. Were they wrong to support it then? Well, that was a matter for Scottish Labour. Laura, I'm telling you... I'm telling you what the position is in relation to... Well, Libby, can you lay out the legal argument that the Conservatives have put forward here. This begins with how the 2004 UK-wide Gender Recognition Act, which sets up the recognition process, is intertwined with the 2010 UK-wide Equality Act, which of course MSPs in Holyrood aren't allowed to change. So the, the, the UK government argues that this new law would create sort of parallel and very different regimes for issuing gender recognition certificates across the UK. And this would impact on, for example, single-sex clubs and associations uh, across the UK. They would have to have very different membership in different parts of the UK. And with equal pay, for example, a UK-wide employer would have employees who couldn't use a colleague as a comparator in an equal pay claim if it was brought in Scotland, but could do so in England. They also raise concerns that the by simplifying the process of application, you do increase the risk of fraudulent applications. How has Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish government responded to this? Well, essentially, they have said, see you in court. As, as you can imagine, the response from nationalists and from sort of more broadly supporters of the bill has, has been furious. I'm more concerned today, perhaps, than I have been at any time in the past about the future of the Scottish Parliament. We have a UK government increasingly hostile to the institution. This is not a spat between the UK government and the Scottish government. This is an attack on the institution of the Scottish Parliament. And we have Nicola Sturgeon has described it as an unprecedented attack on the Scottish Parliament and on devolution. And uh, they've said that they will vigorously defend the legislation and that it is likely to end up in, in court. There was a long road to get this bill passed, six years in fact, making it the most consulted on piece of legislation in Holyrood's history. Now, you've been following its journey from the beginning. Can you tell me a bit about the process? How fraught was it? What did it get right? What did it get wrong? I mean, certainly towards the end of the process and in the last few weeks of the bill, you know, things were very fraught, really. We we saw multiple protests outside the Holyrood Parliament, people booing the avowedly feminist First Minister, describing her as a destroyer of women's rights. It also prompted the SNP's largest backbench rebellion in its time in government. And it also brought Nicola Sturgeon head to head with another of Scotland's best known women, 
the Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling. Today's rally was backed by the author J.K. Rowling, who tweeted a picture of herself wearing a T-shirt, taking aim at the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, describing her as a destroyer of women's rights. Now, the Scottish government say that the bill doesn't... And indeed, on the eve of the, the final vote, she described the gender recognition bill as the single biggest rollback of women's rights in our lifetimes. Having watched it closely over the months, I do think that it showed Holyrood at its best and at its worst. I think there were some strategic failures on, on the part of the SNP, not least because, you know, there were there were parts of the bill that, that were kind of very loosely, often sort of muddled drafting, uh, which I think could have headed off many of the, the criticisms that we saw as, as it progressed. Having said that, though, there were also genuine efforts to work cross-party with MSPs from, from different parties, often with you know opposing views, bringing amendments together in an attempt to, to build last-minute consensus. And um, I think it's, you know, reflecting on, on the way that, that Hollywood sort of eventually passed this bill compared with the way that the Commons was discussing these, these matters last week. The Scottish Government's bill would introduce a new process for applying for legal gender recognition in Scotland. The changes include reducing the minimum age a person can apply for a gender I was I was really struck by the fact that, you know, it almost sort of felt like they were sort of a year behind just in terms of sort of grasp of, of nuance and, and complexity of the issues. Presumably the Scottish Parliament might have expected a clash with the British government over specifically the equality law aspect. What was done to address this? We had Shona Robison, the Scottish Parliament Social Justice Minister, writing for Guardian Opinion at the end of last week. She was arguing that, you know, at every stage of the bill's progress and development, the Scottish government had kept the UK government informed. At no point did Westminster ask to amend provisions of the bill. Immediately after that, of course, I got a UK government rebuttal saying that actually Kemi Badenoch, the UK government's equalities minister, had written to Robison outlining her concerns, urging the Scottish government to pause the bill to allow time for further engagement. What I would say is that it is, it is clear that at official level, I think the Scottish and UK governments were discussing this throughout the, the bill's passage and sort of attempting to, to deal with it. But on a political level, which is, is sadly where we've got to now, the posturing continues. And is there any way that the Scottish Parliament could try again and amend the original bill? That is, is certainly what Alistair Jack, the Scottish Secretary, is, is suggesting now. And indeed, so is Scottish Labour. They're saying that both governments need to get back round the table I think the difficulty is, you know, as far as Shona Robson and the Scottish government are concerned, they, they say that they're only willing to have that kind of conversation if they trust that it is in good faith. And I simply don't think they do. They do believe that Alistair Jack is acting in, in good faith. They feel that he wants to you know, gut the bill, remove the substance of it. Maybe this isn't the first time the UK and Scottish governments have had political disagreements that have ended up in court. But 
Section 35, as we keep being told, is the nuclear option. So what does the Conservative government actually want to achieve here? In terms of getting a sense of what the UK government wants to achieve, you have to remember that the UK government is is not sort of homogenous on, on this, and I think there are different approaches going on within it. Alistair Jack and the, the Scot- Scotland office are at pains to present this as as you know a sort of purely legal technical issue but then again obviously we have the involvement of Kemi Badenoch in in the decision making who I think it's fair to say is a keen participant in in culture war issues our curriculum does not need decolonizing for the simple reason that it is not colonized we should not apologize for the fact that british children primarily study the history of these islands and it goes without saying that the recent fad to decolonize maths decolonize engineering decolonize the sciences that we have seen across our universities to make race the defining principle of what is studied is not just misguided uh, which creates some some suspicion about about motivation I think another key factor in in all of this is that this big conservative player on culture war issues, Dougie Smith, he's a a long-time number 10 aide, but he is now back working in Downing Street with Rishi Sunak. He was actually a former advisor to, to Boris Johnson, and he was the guy who coordinated this war on woke that was pursued by the Johnson administration. And it's now understood that he's been tasked with weaponizing the issue of trans rights before the next election. And this is sort of not just to um, cause difficulties for the SNP in Scotland, but I think more pertinently, it's about sort of stirring division with working class voters in, in red wall seats. Yes, it's worth mentioning he's also part of a real Tory power couple, being that he's married to Manira Mirza, who shares the same vision and was Boris Johnson's head of policy as well. And it seems that there is a genuine political strategy here in which the Tories are weaponising identity. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, not just transgender issues, but also sort of stirring divisions on cultural issues more more broadly. And I think they feel that there are votes to be won there cynically. Well, you mentioned J.K. Rowling earlier, who has, as you said, famously spoken out against this bill. Now, gender-critical feminists like her, who are incredibly vocal about trans people and do hold considerable power in the public discourse, they claim the bill threatens women's safety. Libby, what are their key concerns? Well, I think it's it's been interesting as as the bill progressed, just just watching the way that it has become this real lightning rod for I think far wider debates about you know the meaning of the word woman uh, the nature of inclusion the security of women's spaces well one of their key concerns is that by making it easier to apply for one of these certificates it therefore opens up the possibility that a predatory male will pretend to be transgender in order to get one of these certificates, in order to gain access to women's spaces, be that uh, women's refuge or women's bathrooms or changing rooms. Now, it should be pointed out that that currently one doesn't need a gender recognition certificate to, to access a lot of those spaces that, that I have mentioned. But there is real concern that predatory men will exploit this new system somehow to the extent 
that we had UK government ministers before the bill was passed warning about gender tourism. Uh, and we even had the former Scottish Labour First Minister, Jack McConnell, saying that Scotland would become a magnet for predatory men because of this bill. I guess a lot of other feminists might point out that predatory men exist and will carry on existing with or without the arduous process of applying for a gender recognition certificate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's a counter argument that the Scottish government and supporters of the bill put forward, which is that unfortunately abusive men will uh, do their worst without sort of recourse to gender recognition legislation. Libby, as you've said, Nicola Sturgeon is also an avowed feminist and she's been personally committed to this bill for six years. But with the way it has now played out, do you think it could actually help her politically in her fight for a second independence referendum? If Sturgeon had really sort of been deliberately gaming this for the last number of years, I mean, it is also... <laughs> deliberately punching herself in the face, you know, because the damage that it has done to her own party, reportedly losing members both on the LGBT side and on the gender critical side, the biggest backbench rebellion ever. If it's if that was deliberate, then it is a very odd strategy. Um, that said, of course, there is some opportunism going on now. I mean, I think certainly the announcement of the Section 35 order, which prevents the bill going to royal assent, was a very useful distraction for the SNP leadership from this muddle that is emerging around their plans to run the next election as a de facto referendum. And I guess the striking irony here is that both sides are accusing the other of weaponising trans rights and using trans people as a political football to further or advance their own position or own motivations. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that will continue as we uh, anticipate this this lengthy legal battle now. Having said that, I think what is much more interesting is is what the Scottish public think about it. And and I have to say that that is quite hard to get to grips with at the moment. Well, how much public support is there for the Gender Recognition Reform Bill in Scotland? Well, you know, following the Supreme Court ruling that I've spoken about before on, on the second independence referendum, there was a real bounce for, for support for independence in Scotland. I asked Sir John Curtis, though, the, the polling expert, whether he thought there would likely be a, a similar bounce with, with this decision. And he refers to YouGov and panel-based polls for the Times and the Sunday Times in December as evidence that the Scottish government has failed to persuade the public on on the detail of the gender recognition reforms. Certainly from those polls, there seem to be a fair bit of concern, particularly around the changes for younger people. And he believes that that is actually likely to to cancel out any immediate boost for independence. But that said, we we don't know what the longer term consequences are are likely to be. Libby, clearly Rishi Sunak knew that invoking Section 35 on this bill would cause a huge row. Trans rights, as you've said, have become a wedge issue. Why did he calculate that this was worth having a near constitutional crisis over it? 
this does create difficulties for for labor and i would imagine that that is one of the key reasons why the uk government is plowing ahead with this you had keir starmer telling reporters that he believed that 16 year olds weren't old enough to decide to change gender which you know obviously diverges completely with what the majority of his holyrood colleagues had had voted for just a few weeks prior the Scottish Labour Party says, well, you know, it's not the first time that we've had policy differences with, with our UK counterparts. And um, there is a, a huge diversity of opinion on this issue, certainly in, in terms as well of, of how UK Labour handles it in those Red Wall constituencies. I think that's going to prove very problematic for them. Coming up. More than 30 countries have already adopted self-ID laws for trans people. How has this worked beyond the UK? Well, Libby, you've spoken to young trans people in your reporting, and they are the ones, of course, who all of this affects the most. What sort of things are they saying to you about how the process has gone and what the Gender Recognition Reform Bill means to them? You know, speaking to folk just after the bill had gone through, obviously there was an initial euphoria and, you know, a real kind of celebratory mood. But I think that was tempered by a regret about the length of time that it had taken, the nature of the debate. And then speaking to to younger folk, just after Section 35 was issued, I think there was a real anger. I was at a protest outside the Scotland office last week and, yeah, it was really sort of palpable how fiercely people were feeling about it. It was interesting. I was speaking to a group of high schoolers. Um, there was one 16-year-old I was chatting to. When you spent your entire life knowing that, that trans people exist and knowing to respect that, then... It's less of a debated topic and it's more of something that people just accept, yeah. which is the kind of society a lot of us would like to move towards anyway. And he was saying to me, um, you know, we have grown up with equal marriage as a fact and that for, for his generation, this is just simply a, an obvious next step. But Scotland isn't the only place trying to make it easier for trans people to be recognised in their gender. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the picture on self-identification across the world. So while Scotland is becoming or may become the the first part of the UK to introduce this self-identification system, it is worth pointing out that um, across the world, starting with Argentina in 2012, over 30 countries and regions have adopted self-declaration laws, which is the equivalent to about a quarter of a billion people now living in places where self-ID is legal. In terms of useful comparators, we, we've got sort of Ireland most closely, which introduced self-declaration in 2015. And we know that the sort of increase in numbers there has been really sort of, sort of incremental, but, but fairly small. And I think in the, the first two years of, of that change being introduced, there were an additional 277 applications to, to change gender. And to go back to Scotland, how will the fight over this bill be resolved, do you think? What happens next? I think this is 
indeed, as, as Nicola Sturgeon has already said, inevitably going to end up in the courts, maybe going as far as the Supreme Court. And we have to keep in mind that, that meanwhile, whilst that's going on, trans people in Scotland who have been planning for these changes, expecting them to come into force by the end of this year, beginning of next, are, are now left in limbo. Um, we really are in uncharted waters as far as a Section 35 order goes. It is sort of worth remembering. It's because it's never been used before. There's no case law around it. There's a real kind of vacuum of understanding of, of how it actually works in practice. Over the weekend, we had two former Supreme Court judges coming out and saying that they believed that the Scottish government did not have a strong case were it to uh, challenge the the UK government's decision to to use this. But you know, it's uh, it's really is sort of anybody's guess how this is going to play out in in the courts. It's clearly indicative of of a complete failure of communication between the UK and the Scottish government up to this point. And and I do think that there's a strong argument that transgender people are the victims of this increasingly malfunctioning relationship between Westminster and Holyrood. I know that in private, there are those in the SNP and Labour up here who still worry that the bill raises collateral issues, that there are issues with how it engages with the Equality Act but none of those people agree that a Section 35 order is the way to facilitate understanding. And they express a real disappointment that what might be an opportunity for legal clarity is probably now going to be drowned out by further political rhetoric. Libby, thank you so much. Thank you, Nishim. That was Libby Brooks. She is reporting in depth on this story, so do follow her work on the Guardian website where I'd also recommend reading her long read from last week. It's called It's a Contentious Issue, the inside story of the NHS's Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic, all at theguardian.com. That's it for today. The producers were Natalie Khatena and Ruth Abrahams. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Humer Halili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.